I next met with Dr. Tom Mickelson, and when I asked him what the most important data set was from ASCO on GBM, he told me about a large, randomized, somewhat disappointing RTOG trial. The management of the primary glioblastoma has been standardized ever since the New England Journal publication of the European-Canadian trial with the regimen we use with temozolomide called the STUP regimen. I think the most interesting result from ASCO this year was the report of a very extensive clinical trial which tried to advance that original regimen by comparing a dose-dense temozolomide regimen to the standard one, and for the first time also incorporating the use of stratification variables such as the methylation of the DNA repair enzyme MGMT. So we had high hopes of being able to, for example, overcome the relatively poor prognosis patients whose MGMT enzyme was active, in which case they could repair alkylator-induced injury. And the hope was that dose intensification could overcome that repair capacity. It was a large 1,100-patient clinical trial called RTOG0525. We had been waiting for several years, in fact, for the number of events to allow the definitive endpoints to be reported, and they were reported by Mark Gilbert at ASCO this year. Now, despite the fact that it was 1,100 patients randomized, these patients were randomized to receive either the conventional daily times 5 regimen post-radiation versus 21 days on and 7 days off. That's the so-called dose-dense regimen. It was a randomized trial, 1,100 patients, and post hoc, they stratified for MGMT. The results were very surprising, I must say, because we were expecting this to be at least a double or triple in baseball analogy as far as moving the bar. The disappointment was that the median survival was not different between these two treatment groups, that dose intensification is not able to improve median survival beyond that scene of the original STUP regimen. So that was a bit disappointing, I must say. What the trial did do, though, was re-verify that the methylation status of a patient is still a very strong prognosis variable, this time tested in a prospective trial, and this is the very first time that's been done. Why don't we go through your cases, and your first patient is a 67-year-old man. So this is a man who is retired, functioning very well. He presented with a suspected stroke, as many of our patients do. He came to have been seen as having a moderate-sized mass on the left side. He, after functional MRI and neurosurgery, confirmed the diagnosis of glioblastoma. He had first-line therapy with radiation and temozolomide, the conventional 60-gray, 75 milligrams per meter squared temozolomide through the full radiation period, and then two cycles of the adjuvant setting initially at 150 milligrams per meter squared. Now, after this, unfortunately, as is not uncommon, he showed imaging progression. Incidentally, his tumor had been screened and was an unmethylated case, and he also had the presence of this EGF receptor V3 mutation. Now, that occurs in about 20% of glioblastomas and is typically thought to be a relatively poor prognosis sign, and typically these patients will fail early, as this man subsequently did. So he was seen and screened. He was a potential candidate for a number of clinical trials, but specifically because of the presence of this unique mutation, which ideally, if the hypothesis holds, should engender specific sensitivity towards this irreversible EGF receptor inhibitor called PF299804. He was offered the clinical trial and started it about six weeks ago. And what's his current situation? Right. So, so far, he's coming up to the first imaging interval and his imaging picture has been stable, so at least we've been able to arrest for the progression. I must say we have not seen objective response yet. He has a moderate skin reaction, as the class of this drugs often will produce, mostly over his trunk, which has been fairly uncomfortable, requiring topical steroids and clindamycin. This is known for this class and can be quite irritating, but right now only grade 2, so being treated symptomatically. But I think given the fact that he'd progressed pretty dramatically, 
from the immediate post-radiation phase to the scan after two cycles. I think we're seeing encouraging early activity. Too early to tell for sure, of course. Have there been patients reported or even any in your practice that seemed convincing that they actually had objective responses? Oh, yeah. You know, there are relatively few, especially in the temozolomide era, but certainly I think there are in the range of 20% objective responses. Now, there's a whole other argument about what the parameters for objective response ought to be. MRI is a very sensitive tool, but it's not very specific and can be abnormal, especially in the post-radiation window. It can be abnormal for a lot of different reasons. So I don't think we're seeing the resolution of treatment effect. He actually did have new satellite contrast enhancing away from the radiation field. So I think we are seeing objective stabilization. What about EGFR antibodies like cetuximab and panitumumab? Right. You know, unlike bevacizumab, which is targeting probably an intravascular antigen, I believe that most of the other EGF receptor antibodies simply are not penetrating tumor parenchyma. And it's not an intravascular target, as Bev is attacking the VEGF. EGF receptors on the surface of the glioma cells requires penetration of that antibody into the parenchyma. And while you can probably get some in the area where the blood-brain barrier is massively disrupted, you're clearly not going to get delivery into the infiltrating edge. What are you thinking about in terms of maybe if this man unfortunately doesn't respond or has progression as your next step? Right. We tend to try to look at other clinical trial options when they're available, whether it's the next targeted agent or other strategies. Bevacizumab is approved for this setting. We tend to reserve it, however, for the setting where we have fairly significant tumor progression, especially with mass effect and edema. There is dramatic effect and stabilization of that blood-brain barrier. You know, whether that translates into definitive anti-tumor activity and really survival prolongation, we're going to have to wait and see what the clinical trials are showing. But we tend to withhold and not initiate Bev early. We tend to exhaust other clinical trial options. How about your 63-year-old woman? So this is a really lovely woman. She was referred to us from outside. It was really sort of interesting. She's also a retired lady, but very, very active in her community, who presented in 09 with a pretty large left frontal lesion. And interestingly enough, there was a real flurry of activity around the time of her diagnosis because there were separate pathology reports that described glioblastoma in some components and metastatic adenocarcinoma in others. And there was some discussion of the outside oncologist, first of all, whether she had one of these collision tumors, whether she had a metastasis adjacent to a glioblastoma. This was resolved, however, by sending that specimen to the Mayo Clinic. And there is a quite a rare subvariant of glioblastoma called glioblastoma with epithelioid differentiation. So it turned out to be a primary GBM to begin with, but this unusual histologic type That particular type doesn't tend to have very significant prognostic significance. It's really more a morphologic variant. Before you go on, what's a collision tumor? So there are circumstances when, for example, a glioblastoma might be situated adjacent to another incidental tumor such as a meningioma. And the question comes is that in that larger tumor field, is there something common to result in two simultaneous tumors in the same space? I think the general feeling is, in fact, that those are more chance occurrences than anything else. So what was the next step with this lady? So she got her conventional external beam radiation again with temozolomide, two cycles. And at the outside facility, she progressed after two cycles, again with new contrast enhancement in the left frontal pole away from her resection margin, not typically consistent with treatment effect. She was then put on an NCCTG clinical trial with bevacizumab and serafinib, one of the efforts to try to do an early progression study with a targeted agent in conjunction with bevacizumab, and she did well for about eight months. 
Then she progressed again relatively subtly with new contrast enhancement in the roof of the corpus callosum, about five or six centimeters posterior to her original tumor. This was vaguely contrast enhancing but diffusion positive, and that's an imaging picture fairly consistent with BEV failure. So before you go on, I'm kind of curious what your thoughts are about VEGF, TKIs. It seems in general, just not in GBM, that they kind of haven't really panned out that much. And I'm curious if you agree with that, and if so, why? Well, I would, and it's curious. Now, the one problem, of course, is that the brain and the brain tumor in particular is pretty much a black box. We have very little intervention data to know that after the administration of any particular targeted drugs, whether in fact we even reach the target. So we don't know that the TKIs, for example, are actually downregulating that target, whether they're redundant signaling pathways. One of the reasons, perhaps, that bevacizumab works so well is that it sequesters the ligand. It doesn't block the downstream, or it blocks it secondarily. The TKIs, on the other hand, are blocking at a different level, and it may be that that way of inhibiting the signal is simply not adequate. Yeah, sidirinib was the famous example that was supposed to have been the oral version of bevacizumab, and it simply didn't pan out. Bevacizumab is able to sequester that ligand and prevent signaling, especially on endothelial cells, but possibly also on tumor cells as well. But it's likely because the ligand is freely circulating and accessible to the antibody. The TKIs, on the other hand, we don't know that they penetrate. We don't know that they reach the target or downregulate their signal. That's fascinating. What about VEGF, TRAP, Aflibercept, and GBM? This is another agent targeting the same signaling axis and is simply another way of modulating that VEGF receptor interaction. The original trials started through the NABTC, that's the North American Brain Tumor Consortium. Those groups in that consortium were brought together with our clinical trials group about two years ago through the Adult Brain Tumor Consortium. Those phase two trials have now been completed, at least the first stage, and are now in the analysis phase to decide whether larger scale clinical trials are in order. So I think there has not been a dramatic efficacy signal but I think it may be enough that the agent is still subject to subsequent clinical trials to be certain about that. So what was the next step with this woman? So she actually came to us and we talked about, well, what is the treatment approach for patients that fail bevacizumab? And this is a really unmet medical need in our field. It turns out that in patients who have failure, the failure often looks atypical. It's not typically the intensely contrast-enhancing nodular disease that we see conventionally. It can look very infiltrative. It's often positive on diffusion imaging, but without a lot of extensive contrast enhancement. So she had a fairly large field of involvement and obviously would not be amenable to repeat debulking, not least because bevacizumab is probably still circulating and can cause some wound healing problems if surgery is done in the near term. In any case, her disease had progressed quite far posteriorly on the left side as well, and surgery would like not have been dramatically efficacious. After temozolomide, you know, the next-line cytotoxic chemotherapy options are not terrific. I guess because of the sidirinib experience, CCNU is having some resurgence of interest. That was the control arm that did better than expected. So we actually approached her regarding participation in another clinical trial. And this is with a NOTCH inhibitor. This is a new category of drugs that are inhibiting signals related to stem cell behavior, stem cellness in the setting of glioblastoma, a particularly interesting category of genes. Point is, is that there is a phenotype, probably there aren't specific markers for glioblastoma stem cells, but there is a phenotype where these cells can self-replicate, they can form neurospheres, and as few as 10 cells in animal systems can recreate the entire tumor. So the idea is if there are specific signaling molecules that are unique to this 
stem cell phenotype that these might be a really interesting way of inhibiting the cells that can regenerate the tumor. So the agent is called RO4929097, and it's a phase two clinical trial. So this is a category of clinical trial for a patient at first recurrence. She was in excellent clinical condition. It was a novel strategy, which has advantages, I think, when you've tried to look at cytotoxic approaches, and she'd already sort of exhausted the conventional second-line option with bevacizumab. So she seemed to be an ideal candidate. One of the other issues in our field these days is that many of the brand-new trials with signaling agents in particular often exclude prior bevacizumab use, only because the phenotype of progression can actually change. This is one of our few clinical trials that allows previous bevacizumab use. So what happened? So she is actually on the trial, has now gone through two imaging intervals, and has done extremely well. So far, so good. And that's about four months after initiation. Extremely well. Has she had a response? We have gone through, again, disease stability at her first interval, and she's coming up to her next interval in about two weeks. Any side effects? This one is actually remarkably well tolerated. There's mild fatigue, but not much in the way of skin reaction or diarrhea, which is more typical for the conventional TKIs. So she's doing very well. Do you want to take a crack at talking about stem cellness? It's something I have had a hard time getting a grip on. Right. Well, the controversy is is that if you talk about the stem cell biologists, when you talk about neural stem cells and the more developmental biology, there are pretty specific criteria about what a stem cell is. And while tumor stem cells have a lot of these behaviors, they don't have all of them. So there is some discussion about whether it's appropriate to identify a stem cell or a stem cell marker. There is heterogeneity in these cell types, and there's no definitive way of proving, you know, where they are or what they are. It's really more a phenotype or a behavior of a cell or a capability of a cell where these tumor cells can self-replicate, they can result in differentiated progeny, and then they can regenerate additional stem cells with quotation marks. The thinking is is that these cells have a very low proliferation rate. They can actually be resident in perivascular areas. They have survival signals that they have in this perivascular niche that even if they're not cycling, they can survive, and they are able to survive radiation and chemotherapy, and they're remarkably resistant to both of those strategies. The idea is then that the highly proliferative cell population that we see and that scares us after diagnosis when we hear about proliferation rates of 60, 70, 80 percent, these are not the cells that will result in the inevitable recurrences. The cycling cells, in fact, are fairly well killed by radiation and chemotherapy, and it may well be these quiescent cells that are lying in wait in this perivascular niche that are the ones we ought to worry about. If this woman is unfortunate enough to have progression with this agent, what would your next kind of therapy be that you'd be thinking about? So in essence, she is bevacizumab refractory, and this clinical trial hopefully will allow us some tumor control. But in this and other bev refractory patients, we have had a growing experience with strategies of repeat radiation treatment. Now, there are several techniques to do that. Typically, we do not repeat the entire six weeks fractionated course. Uh, it's up to 60 gray at the first line, and if you were to repeat that, very, very high likelihood of causing radiation toxicity. Now, most of these tumors are also fairly large, and so single-dose strategies, be it by gamma knife or cyber knife, are probably not appropriate either. So we have a technique in between, which we call fractionated stereotactic radiation therapy. This allows us to treat relatively large volumes of tumor bed, including all of the diffusion and flare signal abnormality most often, but up to 150, 180 cc's. But we do it in separate fractions, usually twice per week. And the fractions are in the range of eight gray, and we give four total, so up to 32 gray boost. So it's about a 50% dosage. They're not directly translatable, those numbers, but it's a significant boost but very, very safe. 
We have not seen, and I think we published a retrospective analysis of some 80 cases a couple of years ago, and in our subsequent experience, we have not seen any incidence of radiation necrosis by giving these separate fractions. What's the thinking behind this? Well, certainly any fractionated or stereotactic technique with dose intensification produces, you know, mitotic catastrophe and other things to rapidly cycling cells. This is not a treatment, by the way, that we give in isolation. We use this in preparation for subsequent rounds of chemotherapy. Patrick Wen from Dana-Farber published a series of bevacizumab refractory patients showing that if you have a duration of tumor control on the first bevacizumab regimen, the likelihood of response from a second regimen using bevacizumab plus next-line chemotherapy is about 50% of the length of the initial one. Third regimens, again, 50% of that, so you have a diminishing return. What our major observation was is that by using this fractionated radiation boost, we can prolong the responsiveness of subsequent chemotherapy courses to even double previous response rates. So it's a component, but not the entire answer. Anything new in terms of bevacizumab for GBM? And one thing I'm curious, I kind of hear things about is the situation you mentioned, patients who've already had progression on bevacizumab. And I've heard people raise the question that in some way the drug, I don't know, promotes more invasiveness or as opposed to it's just they're living longer. Or you know, I'm, I'm sure you know what I'm talking about. Anything, oh, absolutely. Anything new on that? Yeah, not specifically, but the observation is that there is a proportion of patients, and it's clearly not all of them, but there are a proportion of patients whose tumors, when they do recur, tend to be highly infiltrative. And the argument is, is there something that Bev blockade is doing to initiate a migratory phenotype, or are those tumors really not being allowed to produce the significant mass effect and mechanical compression that we see in lumpy progression, and the infiltrating behavior is simply the natural history absent the large mass effect? There are animal models to suggest that VEGF blockade can, in certain circumstances, be associated with increased infiltrative behavior. Cause or effect, hard to know. The imaging features of what is infiltrating disease are also difficult. And the other final thing, of course, is that in these clinical circumstances, we have very few histologically-based studies because the tissues are hard to come by. In those patients that do come to surgery, they've been off the agent usually between four and six weeks. So it's hard to get proximate near-term histologic data. What's your hypothesis or thinking ultimately in terms of what's going on when you see these you know, clinically refractory patients after BEV? Right. Well, you know, it's a matter of extent. For those that end up resulting in this huge gliomatosis picture where they have, you know, infiltrating tumor in all four quadrants of the brain, I must say I've not seen much of anything do a lot of good. In settings, however, when you have a hemisphere involved or, you know, multi-lobar involvement, you can see objective responses pretty dramatically with our radiation techniques. In fact, I saw another woman this morning who is on third or fourth line therapy, had a reoperation three months ago, significant nodular progression. We did fractionated stereotactic radiation, and now she has very significant response two months out and is doing exceptionally well, this despite being on fourth line, third line BEV regimen and clinically stable to slightly improved. Do you ever retreat people with BEV? Oh, yes. So, in fact, if we do pause a patient for a clinical trial such as this RO trial for this woman we just spoke of, if she does progress, one could certainly entertain retreating her, and we certainly can see objective re-response. I think the point is, is that BEV, because it targets, in large extent, the VEGF endothelial interaction, the endothelial compartment is not necessarily all tumor-derived, and it can be stable and still subject to BEV inhibition. How about your 46-year-old man? 
So this is an interesting and difficult problem. So this is a wonderful guy who's a salesperson. He's 46, and he had first-line therapy for glioblastoma having been diagnosed in 2004. So he had done very, very well. First-line therapy, radiation, temozolomide, did very well, and he had completed 24 cycles of adjuvant therapy. He was really hyper and wanted to get maximum benefit, even though there's no data, and we had many, many arguments about what the correct duration of therapy ought to be. In any case, he completed that back in 2006. We've been doing regular imaging follow-up, and in the relatively few number of cases, he was actually at a six-month imaging interval for glioblastoma. I'm loath to do that, but he was one of the ones that did well. Now, last fall, he was doing perfectly fine, We arranged that he should return for a follow-up scan in December. We made efforts to try to get that booked. He missed the appointment and, you know, was too busy to get around to it. But unfortunately, in the spring, he had pretty massive progression, and this was bifrontal. His original tumor was in the right frontal lobe. He was 100% intact. And in fact, clinically, he remained quite well, but he had this, you know, 8 to 9 centimeter butterfly pattern of contrast enhancement in the bifrontal lobes. Is it common to see that degree of tumor in the frontal lobes but still not be symptomatic? It's surprisingly common. Again, depending a little bit on the rate. But I think in retrospect, if you talk to his wife, yeah, he's a little bit forgetful, but he really didn't have the conventional bifrontal symptoms that we know about, which are problems with motor planning, problems with apathy and emotional blunting and things like that. He just didn't have that. Interesting. Yeah, so he actually was on a clinical trial briefly with an agent which blocks PDGF receptor, which is an antibody called Medi575. It was a tall order, I must say. He had a massive disease burden, but despite the fact he had a KPS of 90, so we felt that we didn't want to subselect patients for all of our clinical trials, so we gave it a shot. He was on that, but unfortunately progressed further after the first cycle. Again, no adverse events, but we just didn't feel that he was having an adequate enough response to justify keeping him on the trial. We then initiated bevacizumab, and he had a pretty dramatic response, as patients typically do after two doses. The first MRI we did at six weeks, just before his third administration, and he had probably an 80% reduction in the contrast-enhancing component, a very significant reduction in the amount of edema that he had, resolution of the mass effect on the frontal horns of the ventricle, and again, clinically quite well. The issue was is that despite the fact that he had this very significant objective response, there was a moderate amount of blood in the tumor bed in the deep right frontal lobe. And while that wasn't clinically symptomatic, it wasn't simply, you know, five millimeters of residual blood products. It was about a three centimeter region of hyperintensity prior to the administration of gadolinium. And that at least raised the question about what is the relative safety versus efficacy balance of, you know, how much is too much and what is the near-term threat. In terms of BEV? Yes. So did it get worse or better or stay the same? So far, it stayed the same. We've followed him up through one imaging interval since then, and he's continuing to do very well. He has not had any clinical decline. In fact, he remains KPS of 90, doing very well working full time, despite the fact that he has this massive involvement of the bifrontal lobes. And this, I think we basically chose to say, listen, there are some risks going forward, but I think there are more risks in fat by stopping the agent and allowing that re-accumulation of the tremendous mass effect that he had. This issue of bleeding with Bev, of course, has been out there on the table for a while. Anything new on that? And what about the specific subset of patients like this who already have blood in the tumor? Right. You know, I think the observation was in the Bev trials that got the accelerated approval, there certainly were recognized grade one and grade two hemorrhages, which are primarily those that are identified as incidental blood products. I think this counts as, at least imaging-wise, a little more prominent than is typical. 
but the grade one and grade two hemorrhages have not dissuaded us previously. Oftentimes, it's difficult to discriminate whether those are new hemorrhages or residual old blood products. This was clearly new. I don't think there are specific guidelines, frankly, as far as that goes. We do know that while both hemorrhage and clotting are on the list of adverse events related to BEV, everything is a matter of relative risk. The relative risk of allowing this massive tumor progression, which my prediction would have been, is that he would have had a clinical decline within you know, one to two weeks had we not initiated, in effect, an anti-edema strategy for his frontal lobes. There really are no guidelines out there as far as how much blood is too much. Any side effects, hypertension, nosebleeds that he had? No, he actually had no systemic bleeding at all, and he was not on anticoagulants, so no predisposition. What do you see in terms of side effects with bevacizumab in GBM patients as opposed to you know colon cancer and all the other tumors we have? Kind of similar or anything unique? Largely similar. There's nothing really that stands out. Although, we, interesting, we had a medical oncology fellow who actually did present at ASCO this year a report from our institution where we actually looked at the incidence of hypertension and of proteinuria in the setting of glioblastoma patients who developed that from a two- to three-year cumulative experience. And she reported on 90-some patients who had some degree of either hypertension or proteinuria. And interestingly enough, uncontrolled retrospective study, you know, the caveats notwithstanding, these patients tended to do a little bit better as far as their subsequent survival. And I guess this is this paper by Dr. Nanja that you're referring to. And I guess we've seen whiffs of this in other tumors, like maybe renal cell, I think. How much of a correlation was there? So the correlation, you know, the numbers are relatively limited. The other thing is, is when you do studies like this, it's difficult to define the degree of hypertension, the degree of proteinuria, because these are most often qualitative differences. And what we came to find is that, in fact, the recording of these events in the routine care is actually not perfect. So the correlation was difficult to nail. Prospectively, now going forward, we're being much more careful about how we're gauging this. So, you know, the correlation, while it was there and it was statistically significant, I'm not sure we would be able to gauge the strength of that unless we did this prospectively, which we're doing now. Now, the other thing that was brought out in this was that it seems like the incidence of hypertension was pretty high, higher than, I mean, most of these patients had hypertension. Am I correct? This was probably a selected subset where it was probably followed more carefully because it occurred, you know what I mean? As opposed to if it was not an issue whatsoever, it probably wasn't identified or flagged. So I think the true incidence, again, is going to depend on a prospective collection in all of the BEV patients. But am I correct in saying that at least in this series, it looks like more than two-thirds or three-quarters of these people had hypertension? Yes, to a degree. That's right. Interesting. Is there anything out there, I mean, obviously in many tumors, we're talking about the issue of prediction of benefit markers with anti-vegist therapy and specifically bevacizumab. Anything that looks promising for GBM? And what about the actual imaging itself? Do you see more benefit, for example, if there's more edema? Well, there's no doubt that I think there are two components to the activity of bevacizumab. There's clear that because it's an anti-VEGF agent, VEGF also being known as vascular permeability factor, there's a dramatic anti-edema effect. Now, the clinical trials, especially the prospective trials that have recently completed accrual, will help us determine how much real, in effect, true anti-tumor effect there is by impacting survival. But clearly, in the near term, there are dramatic anti-edema effect. And I think the more of that, the more dramatic it looks. People have described a lot of elderly patients in particular, which they call the Lazarus phenomena, where they have these massive episodes of edema and mass effect in the brain that are resolved dramatically after several doses of BEV. That doesn't necessarily always predict long-term benefit. So I think the near-term benefit is pretty dramatic in really a large proportion of patients. In our experience, that's in the range of 80% objective improvements, both by contrast enhancement and edema and mass effect. 
But the translation to how much that means in the long term for actual objective survival remains to be seen. And that's variable, I must say. I want to ask you a little bit about brain mets, but before I do, maybe just taking a step back in terms of GBM clinical management and research. I mean, imagine you're giving a CME talk, which you probably do, to oncologists. Is there anything that we haven't talked about that you want to bring up? I think, you know, the strategy we spoke of with MGMT predicting outcome is important. But there are other mechanisms of DNA repair, thinking of the, and I'm coming around to the issue of the PARP inhibitors, because I think if you're going to talk about categories of drug development that are likely to produce objective benefit for our population in the near term, the two strategies I would see that is having the most benefit are the stem cell-related therapies we talked about, the notch inhibitors, and so on. But I think the other category that's coming are the PARP inhibitors. These are inhibiting base excision repair and other pathways that are repairing alkylate or chemotherapy-induced damage, because MGMT is only responsible for a minority of DNA repair. So there are several compounds that are out there, ABT888 and BSI201 are both an active clinical trial going forward to the late phase two stage with, I think, encouraging early results. And they may well go forward into more definitive trials. Encouraging early results, does that mean there have been objective responses to monotherapies? So these are not monotherapies. These are in combination with temozolomide. Mm. But these are prospective in the adjuvant setting, radiation, chemotherapy with temozolomide, and the addition of the PARP inhibitor. Kind of seems like since ASCO, there's been discouragement about PARP inhibitors in breast cancer, maybe encouragement in terms of ovarian cancer. Biologically, sort of where do you think GBM is going to fall out? My prediction would be on the positive side. I know BSI had a big splash at ASCO a year or two ago. I'm not familiar with the specific data subsequently, but I think what we're seeing are encouraging early stages. And, you know, we've been disappointed in the past, but I think that we're seeing enough positive that this is likely where we're going to put some of our energies in the brain tumor consortium anyway to try to do these more definitive trials on larger scale prospectively. So let's talk a little bit about brain mats. I see that you're a panel member on the AANS slash CNS Management of Brain Mets Evidence-Based Clinical Parameters Guidelines. What do they look at? So this was actually driven by the neurosurgical organizations, and Steve Kalkanis from our institution was the leader of this outcomes strategy, and it was just a comprehensive literature review and guideline process, you know, evidence-based guidelines for management of brain mets. So there are all kinds of issues that were addressed in a compendium that I think addressed 10 or so specific questions, ranging from, for example, the prophylactic use of anticonvulsants to the role of radiosurgery versus whole brain radiation and resection. Anything that you want to bring out from that that you think is particularly important from an education point of view? Yeah, I think there are certain things that people sort of learn by routine as they go through. And if you look hard at the data, it's not clearly supported. One of the guidelines that I wrote was specifically related to the role of routine prophylactic anticonvulsants. And in the absence of objective seizures, there really is no data that administering anticonvulsants, which can often produce adverse events, has a particular utility in the absence of objective seizures. Would you say the same thing for GBM? Yes, our practice is not to use routine anticonvulsants. The surgeons will often do it in the immediate perisurgical time frame, but by the time we get our hands of them a week or so after surgery, we'll get them off nearly immediately. Did you all address the issue of temozolomide in brain mets? So temozolomide has had a bit of a checkered past. There was some enthusiasm, especially in some tumor subtypes, such as non-small cell lung cancer in small phase two trials. These have not really been expanded upon. But the response rates and the time to progression are not dramatically affected by temozolomide. We did a dose escalation trial to see whether it was a dose phenomenon. We really couldn't escalate temozolomide very much within the two-week window of conventional whole brain radiation for brain mets. 
And even in our highest dose cohorts, objective responses and delayed tumor progression really wasn't seen compared to radiation alone. Do you clinically deal a lot with patients with spinal cord compression from solid tumors or more primary CNS? We're primarily primary tumors, but our tumor board group deals with a lot. Of course, spinal cord compression is a joint enterprise between radiation oncology and neurosurgery. That is, however, an expanded area for neuro-oncology because of the clinical trials going with systemic radiosurgery. This is a really exciting technology that is being much more widespread recently. The question is, where are the boundaries between where a tumor must be decompressed by neurosurgery because of impending cord compression versus what can be safely treated with this so-called extraaxial radiosurgery? Extraaxial radiosurgery. Can you comment on that? So this is spinal radiosurgery that can be done. The fixation systems are not super complex, but there has to be a lot of attention paid to quality assurance, especially given the proximity of the cord. But this is really much less a palliative type therapy, which conventional external beam to spinal disease has been in the past, and much more, they say with curative intent, but we know that's not really what they're intending, but with excellent decompression using single dose often radiosurgery. And this can be done in difficult circumstances, such as high up in the cervical spine, where neurosurgery can be very complicated, or it can be elsewhere. If there is not bony compression, if there's not prolapse of bone fragments into the spinal canal, radiosurgery, in fact, can be as good as decompressive surgery. The prospect of clinical trials for that are just going on right now through RTOG. That's fascinating. Anything you want to add to what you said today? I think there are some pluses and some minuses this year. We'll see what comes next year. I mean, I got to say, it sounds like not too much exciting going on right now, unfortunately. Right. New drug development. I think, you know, there are these waves, right? We get some enthusiasm for strategies. I think the next wave, however, is going to be kind of informatics driven. And where we're putting our resources is tailoring therapy, trying to actually recreate some of the GBMs in animal models and test these hypotheses. Single gene mutations, such as whether it's EGF receptor V3, whether it's CMET, is part of the puzzle, and those instances are pretty low. I think there are patterns of gene expression, however, pathways that we can identify at multiple levels through TCGA and other strategies. I think we're going to get some rational combination treatments, and that's where we're putting our attention.